We only have one more message left in our series, Respect What, where we've been looking at the Ten Commandments and how they play out in our lives. You don't want to miss next weekend. Invite a friend to be here because we're going to talk about something we all struggle with. And if you are raising children, how many parents? I know you struggle with it. And that is lying, all right? So we're going to learn how to overcome lying because it's a problem in our culture. It's even a problem in politics these days. So we're going to cure all of that, all right? This weekend, though, we're going to get right into it. We have two commandments we're going to look at this weekend. The first one is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Say it with me. You shall not steal. Pretty obvious. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. I read a headline in Market Watch uh, this past week that said that America leads the nation, or excuse me, America leads the world in terms of employees who steal from employers. In other words, no other nation is as bad as this one. We take $16.6 billion a year from our employers, from our businesses. And of course, that cost just ends up being passed down to everybody else. So we know that thievery, theft is a problem in, in our world, in our society, in our culture, because we all have a sinful nature. But rather than talking about stealing things, I want to combine this to another commandment and show you that this commandment is just one of the ways that we commit theft. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, let's read it aloud together. You shall not commit adultery. There was a movie that came out some time ago called Kite Runner. It's based on a true story out of Afghanistan. There's a scene in that story where the father, whose name is Baba, is talking to his young son, Amir. And he says to him, Amir, there is really only one sin. Theft. Every other sin is a variation of that. So if a man, you know, if, if a man kills another man, he robs that man of life. If that man is married, he robs the wife of a husband. If the man has children, he robs the children of a father. Lying, he says, is theft. When you lie, you rob someone of the truth. And he kept going on and on all the way down, trying to show that, you know, every sin is a variation of theft. Well, adultery certainly is a variation of theft. Because when you take into your arms the husband or wife of another person, right, you are stealing that person's spouse away from them. And if there's children, you're stealing that father or mother away from those children. Not to mention what you do if you're married to your spouse or to your own children. And it causes wreckage and ruin. And we've all heard or perhaps even been exposed to or perhaps even been a very intimate part of something like that. But this whole idea of sexual sin goes beyond just marriage. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer. Now, will God forgive the adulterer? Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And all the sexually immoral. And that word sexually immoral is a very broad term that includes all kinds of, of sexual immorality from you know, in modern day terms, hooking up, which is just a nicer way to describe fornication, uh, to pornography, which is a rampant problem, even amongst Christians. It's all covered by that umbrella. God designed us and God invented marriage as a place where between a husband and a wife, healthy sexuality can be enjoyed and practiced. When it's taken out of those boundaries or when it betrays those boundaries, it causes so much hurt and so much pain. 
And a lot of times we don't want to talk about it. You know, we want to be hush-hush and secret about it. And the reality is, look at the condition of the world today. Look at the condition of families today. We see what happens when we don't talk about it and we won't deal with it. And as, and as, as much as I am and for, you know, education and homeschooling and, and, and private Christian schools, the reality is you can't hide your kids anywhere where they're not going to be exposed to this in some measure. You can minimize it, but it's there in the culture So you might as well meet it head on and deal with it in order to protect your kids, in order to protect your family. Whether you're single or married, God says it's a proper place for this to take place in our lives. So I want to talk about how we can protect ourselves, our families, our students, and, and those of us who, you know, those of you who might be single as well. First thought, jot it down. It's a matter of God's will. It is learning to trust God's will and not our feelings. I've got to learn to trust God's will. I've got to learn to trust God's truth about life, about me, about sexuality, and not my feelings. And that's a big issue, again, in our culture today. And it's a big part of who we are. We are all feeling-oriented uh, creatures. And the problem is, too oftentimes, we let our feelings lead our lives, and our feelings cannot be trusted. I can wake up one morning and feel absolutely great. Nothing horrific happens that day. I can wake up the next morning and feel really grumpy. How many of you ever had that experience this morning? Right? Don't trust your emotions. They're all over the board. And since our emotions are very much a part of our sexuality, it can be a very, very dangerous combination. And our culture does not help us out in this area. I was reading a statistic recently that said that 80% of what you hear about sexuality on television is outside the safe boundaries of marriage. The average teenager watches 20 hours of television a week. Now, that's not true of any student at Wooddale Church. But everybody else, 20 hours, average 20 hours a week. So if 80% of the conversation and the innuendos are outside of marriage and you're watching 20 hours of television a week, what are the odds you're going to hear a lot of messages that, that are outside of God's prescription for sexuality? Pretty high, isn't it? Not to mention peer conversations and all the other kind of stuff that's coming at us right and left and straight on. And so we've got to figure this, this, this problem out. And one of the ways we do that is coming to grips with the fact that I cannot live by my feelings. I cannot trust my feelings. They will betray me. They will take me down dead ends. They will destroy my life. And when you're a teenager, I know we have a lot of students in this service, when you're, when you're a student and your hormones are waking up in your body, that makes it even more challenging. And I, you know, it was hard when I was growing up as a kid. When I think about where our students are in this culture and with the media the way it is and with the looseness of standards in our culture today, I'm telling you what, they live in a, com- a moral combat zone. They need our prayers and they need our encouragement and our blessings in that kind of environment. But um, I also think about just even in marriage, how this can affect our lives. I've done a lot of premarital counseling in the past when, when I was in a smaller church and a solo pastor. I was a one-stop shop for everybody and everything. And uh, oftentimes couples would sit in front of me, especially if they were younger, and I would ask them, I would say, why do you love him? Why do you love her? And more often than not, the response was, because... He makes me feel good because he makes me or she makes me happy. And I would sit there in the back of my mind, I would go, oh, brother, just wait. 
Because one day you wake up, that person you married, and you discover you're not making me happy right now. You make me grumpy. You make me mad. You make me feel like shouting. You make me feel angry. You make me feel like leaving. Cannot live by our feelings. Therefore, we have to do this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I have to choose to live in a loving relationship with my spouse and in a proper way with my friends and not base it on my feelings. What I have to come to grips with is love is not about feelings. Love is an act of the will no matter how I feel. I do what is right. If my feelings are leading me towards sexual temptation, I ignore my feelings and I choose to do what is right. If I've lost my feelings toward my spouse because of hardship or difficulties or whatever is going on, I still choose to love my spouse. So it's really not about feelings, it's about the mind. So I have to be careful then to guard my mind. In order to stay in the right boundaries, in order to deal with the temptations that come along in life, as students, as adults, as parents, as singles, as marriage, we've got to get a grip on our minds. That's where sex begins, is in the mind. So it doesn't matter how young or how old you are, it can be an issue for you. And the mind is a powerful thing. And the mind, because of our sinful nature, doesn't cooperate very well with us. The mind wanders. The mind wanders 50% of the time that you're conscious. And even while you're sleeping, the mind wanders. Ever had dreams? When the mind wanders, it wanders to two places. It wanders to negative things, worry, anxiety, you know, threats that we perceive in our mind. Or it wanders to things that are novel, things that stand out, things that are unique, things that are curious, things that are different, things that tickle our feelings. It will wander one way or the other. So do you realize how important it is that we get our minds in the right place? Because the culture, and the culture is a Disneyland of wandering with all kinds of novel things that are always coming up. And we are all attracted to that. And our students and our children are very attracted to that. So we have to be careful with wandering minds or we're going to find ourselves in trouble. Jesus said this. He said, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart or his mind. So Jesus says it's not just the act. He says it's, it's the thinking. It's what happens inside of here that is the sin that leads to the act. So deal with this. Deal with this. Now, to understand how to deal with it, I want to talk a little bit about how we fall into temptation in the first place. And so that's why we have the chocolate cake up here. I love chocolate cake. It's better with ice cream on it, but I love chocolate cake. And uh, it, I am sure that when the cake of the pigs came out, all right, your attention was drawn to them. It was novel. You're like, what are those doing out here? You don't even have to like them, all right? You're still like, what is that doing out here? It caught your attention. So we're going to talk about the cake for a few moments. 
And this cake is going to represent uh, temptation in today's uh, conversation, particularly sexual temptation. There's nothing wrong with the cake. The cake in and of itself is fine, all right? But this cake doesn't belong to me for the sake of our illustration, right? It belongs to someone else. And it presents itself to me as a temptation, or I see it and it conjures up in me feelings and desire toward this cake that I'm not supposed to have. The cake that belongs to itself or the cake that belongs to someone else. There are four steps that take place in temptation. The first one is distraction. You probably have noticed this is the only chocolate cake in the room unless some of you snuck one in. This is the only one. And because it's the only one, it, it you know, our mind goes there. It's a distraction. It's unlike what we normally see in this place. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, read it later on, there are all kinds of trees and fruit, but there's one tree with fruit in it that God says to Adam and Eve, you can't have any of that fruit. It belongs to me. And they lived with that for a while. I don't know how long they lived with it. And then one day a serpent came along and began to speak. I don't understand that whole thing, all right? I believe it. That had to have been a bit of a distraction when the serpent begins to speak to Eve. And the distraction pulls her toward what she's told she's not supposed to take. So there's distraction. Oh, look at the cake. There's no other cakes in here. Wow, I I usually don't see a cake in here. I'm going to look at this cake, which then leads to attraction. Because it's a distraction, because it's novel, unique, I then, I then am attracted to it. And by the way, novelty comes to us in terms of sexual temptation in many different ways. It can come to us physically. Someone, you know, obviously physically we find attractive. We're attracted to their looks. Not necessarily, is that sinful to be attractive or to be attracted, but what I do with it is a big issue. It could be spiritual attraction. You know, there's a charisma about people who walk with God that can be very attractive. It could be an emotional kind of novelty, the way they make you feel, the way they talk about you, the way they treat you. It could be a verbal uh, novelty. It could be a a spiritual novelty, a mental novelty, any number of things that could just cause you to pause and go, oh, oh, not just a distraction, but, but interesting which then leads to the third step, which is interaction. Hey, cake, you look lonely. Why are you here all by yourself? Nobody's paying attention to you? I know you don't belong to me, but you're by yourself. Cake, you're beautiful. Look at the curves on that cake. You're handsome. Strong cake. You're a nice cake. You're a gentle cake. You make me feel good cake. I'm in trouble. Right? I've gone from distraction to attraction to interaction. And if I don't do something pretty soon, it leads to a what? An interaction. Cake tastes good. I ate off my teeth. Chocolate cake. Eve saw the apple. It was attractive. She interacted with the, a- the apple. She saw the fruit. She had, it was attractive. She interacted with it. And then it says it was delightful 
in her eyes. It was pleasing and she took it. And what did she do? Ate it. That's right. She ate it. And she gave it to her husband. He ate it. And sin was birth. Sin was completed as a result. Every temptation goes through that process. It may happen quickly, it may happen slowly, but it goes from distracted to attracted to interactive, then to transaction, and then it's too late. And sexual sin always works that way. And right now, if you're facing, if you're challenged by it, I want to ask you what stage you're at because you need to get out before you get to that last stage. And so Jeffrey Schwartz has come up with what he calls the four R's And I want to share them with you because we can use it in order to start to back out or stay away from this kind of temptation when it comes to us, whether single, married, young, or old, no matter what it is. The first R he calls relabeling. So back to our cake. Ready? I see the cake. No sin has happened yet. All right? doesn't belong to me. It belongs to self. It belongs to someone else. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of God. Perhaps the cake is a follower of God as well. All right? And all of a sudden, I had this, this urge that I know is not right because I know what the truth says. There's a temptation to flirt with the cake. There's a temptation to take the cake. There's a temptation to initiate something that's wrong with the cake. I call it what it is. I relabel it a temptation. This is a temptation I'm facing. The second thing I do is I reattribute this. Why is this a temptation to me? Because I am a sinful human being and I live in a sinful world. And these desires that come out of me are sinful and the desires that are projected at me from the world are sinful. I name it what it is. It is sinful. I don't give it a nice name. You know, people call it an affair. They call it a a flirt. They call it a fling. It's still sin. It's still adultery. They call it hooking up, getting together, whatever terms are used these days. It's still a sin. It's still wrong. Soft porn, hard porn, it's still wrong. It's wrong. I call it what it is. It's wrong. And then thirdly, I refocus. I refocus. What that simply means is I take my eyes off the cake. Paul says, flee youthful lust. Run away from it. I focus my mind. I focus my thoughts on things that are pure, things that are good, things that are right for me. Even Adam in the garden. All the trees and all the fruit are theirs. Take what they want. Just one tree and its fruit, leave it alone. What does a serpent get them to do? To focus on what they can't have. And it becomes huge to them. There's so much else they could have. When you're facing temptation, don't just, you know, don't think that that's the only thing in life for you. Think about everything that you can have, everything you can do, and go after that. But it's a mental choice you have to make. Now, here's the danger. And listen very carefully to this. Psychologically, it's been proven. The more you wrestle with an obtrusive thought, the more you wrestle with temptation, and you fight it. You know what I mean? Like you're you're, you're wrestling with, why is this happening to me right now? Why do I feel this way? Why do I want that? I hate myself for this. I hate this thing that's going on in me. I got to break it. The more you wrestle with it, the bigger it becomes. And the bigger it becomes, the more powerful it becomes. And it will overtake your life. So you have to do what doesn't seem uh, right. It just seems odd. You just have to to relabel it, reattribute it, and then just walk away from it. And all it's nagging, you just ignore it. And the way you ignore the nagging of temptation is you get your mind on something that's good and something that's right. 
You just refocus your mind in the right direction. And then what happens is you revalue. The more you do that, in other words, what happens is when those thoughts come to your mind, you have conditioned your mind to just go, eh, sin, don't want it, don't need it, ignore it, move on. But you can never get to the place where you think you are no longer vulnerable. Because the moment you get to that place, it will sneak in. It will sneak in. Now, I want to talk to those of you who are married, specifically. And for those of you who aren't married, who are single, who are thinking about dating or are dating or want to get married someday, you're going to get tremendous advice out of this. Students, listen very carefully. This will help you later on if you live in the right boundaries. I have my two pigs, all right? Some of you may say there are three up there, whatever. Um, Henry, all right? Ooh, and Henrietta, okay? And uh, they're going to represent uh, a man, a woman, a husband, and wife, all right? Now, before you got married, okay, every one of us, every one of us has inside of us a love bank, okay? A love bank. And what caused you and him, or those of you who have, you know, girlfriends, boyfriends, those of you, you know, are, who are dating, what happens is, is somebody comes along and they make a deposit in your love bank. So... You know, she says, you know, she looks attractive to you. You look at her and you go, wow, she's beautiful. That, that, that's a deposit. And she says, wow, he's handsome. That's a deposit. Oops. And what happens, we move a little closer. Then they say something nice about you. They, they talk nice about you. And you're like, oh, man, that was a wonderful deposit. And he goes, oh, man, that was great. Just love the way you talked to me. And then she makes you feel good. You know, you feel warm and fuzzy. You just feel good. It's like, oh, that's wonderful. And, and, you know, you make her feel good and you're a little bit closer. And then you do things for each other that are really nice and special. And, and maybe you both pray and you love God. And it's like, man, I was looking for a godly woman. I was looking for a godly man. They make those deposits in the bank. And then one day you go to the altar and you say, I do. All right. <laughs> and you're married, husband and wife. But here's what happens. After you say, I do, pretty soon you're saying, I don't. Because what happens is life happens. You get busy. You've got your job, right? And then maybe you have children. And then maybe, you know, you've got health issues. And then maybe your body's changed a little bit. And you begin to see this person has all these weird habits. And things start to happen. And life just gets hectic. And there's church. And there's places to go. And places to be. And people to know. And on and on it goes. And you're not making deposits anymore. So, in fact, you're making withdrawals. You're, you're grumpy with each other. You're unkind to each other. You know, you're yelling at the kids and the, you know, the car and the job. And, man, you get stressed out. But here's the problem. While you're out here, nobody's making deposits in each other. Somebody at work comes along. Somebody in the neighborhood comes along. Somebody at church comes along. Somebody at the gym comes along, and they make a deposit. Oh, you're a nice person. Ching, ching. I felt good. Oh, boy, I feel sorry for you. You're going through a lot, man. You know, I just want you to know I care about you. Oh, somebody cares about me. Ching, ching. Oh, you're handsome. Oh, you're beautiful. Ching, ching. Oh, I'd love to spend more time with you. Ching, ching. Oh, let's pray together about this. Ching, ching. Whoever makes the most deposits gets what? Gets the attention. Gets the attraction. And pretty soon you're emotionally involved. And once you start down that, that train track, it is really hard to stop. So what do you have to do? 
You've got to make sure that as a husband and a wife, you are the chief depositors in each other's life. I promise you, let somebody else be the chief depositor. You will grow apart and you will be in trouble. So that means as a husband and wife, it means that, that, I, that we speak to each other in ways that we would never speak to anybody else. And I'm talking about kindness and goodness. There are just certain words, certain phrases, certain things we say to each other we would never say to anybody else of the opposite sex. There are certain things we do for each other that we would never do for the opposite sex. The other person. There's something that we, uh, there's, there's a way that we look at each other that we would never look at anybody else that same way. There's conversations that we have with each other that we would never have with anybody else but each other. There are ways that we touch each other that we would never touch anybody else that way. And so what happens is each of us feels very unique and very special, king and queen, prince and princess. Because we notice that our spouse reserves that just for us. And that, that makes us feel, notice I said, feel and be very special. And even when one of us makes a huge withdrawal, grumpy, unkind, the other one says, oh, you're being kind of prickly right now. Well, I'm going to be the same way. No, the other one says, doesn't matter. I'm sticking with you. I love you. I'm going to keep making those deposits. And it's a good thing. Because I want to tell you something. The opposite of it is a terrible thing. And that is we need to think about the consequences of sexual sin. Especially in the area of marriage. The consequences are devastating. And I will talk about God's grace and God's forgiveness. But I want us to have a reality check for just a moment. I want you to think with me about what the deadly consequences are to adultery. And Marsh and I have seen this in so many people that we have counseled over the years. It is devastating. Listen carefully. Chuck Swindoll writing on this. He's a pastor, a godly man, great preacher. Writes... Your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal, shame, rejection, heartache, and loneliness. No amount of repentance will soften those blows. Your mate can never again say that you are a model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob her or him of trust. Your escapades will introduce to your life and your mate's life the very real probability of a sexually transmitted disease. The total devastation your sinful actions will bring to your children is immeasurable. Their growth, innocence, trust, and healthy outlook on life will be severely and permanently damaged. The heartache you will cause your parents, your family, and your peers is indescribable. The embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you, respected you, and trusted you will be overwhelming. If you are engaged in the Lord's work, you will suffer the immediate loss of your job and the support of those with whom you work. The dark shadow will accompany you everywhere and forever. Forgiveness won't erase it. Your fall will give others license to do the same. The inner peace you enjoy will be gone. You will never be able to erase the fall from you or another's mind. This will remain indelibly etched on your life's record regardless of your later return to your senses. The name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished, giving the enemies of your faith reason to sneer at you. It's a serious thing. And, and, and you know, rather than just skirt around it, let's just be honest. And, and you know, and I think those who have been the victims of, of an adulterous affair, or even those who've been the perpetrators and their lives have been reconciled and, you know, forgiveness has happened since then, 
you still, you still know the pain that you live with. Marsha and I have people we love and care so deeply for who've gone through this and the devastation that we've witnessed in their lives and their families. And though there's forgiveness and though there's reconciliation, there's still such pain and there's just this sense that continues of, can I trust him? Can I trust her? It can be a painful thing. And if you're here thinking, oh, this can never happen to me, heed the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 who said, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. It's like we always, always, always have to be on our guard. On our guard. Protecting ourselves, protecting our mate. Will God forgive sexual sin? Yes, he will. Will he forgive adultery? Yes, he will. Jesus was brought a woman in John chapter 8 when she had fallen into adultery. She was caught. The religious bigots brought her to Jesus. They wanted to stone her. And they waited for Jesus to see what he would say. And finally he looked at them all and he said, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, it says, they dropped their stones and walked away. And he looked at the woman and he said to her, where are those who condemn you? And she, and she said, they're not here. And he looked at her and said, neither do I. And that day, grace and mercy and forgiveness met shame and guilt and heartache. But we forget the other words Jesus said to her. He said, now go and stop this sinning. I've forgiven you. Now change your way. Still consequences to live with in our lives oftentimes. But yes, God does forgive. But I'm telling you, it, the sin is not worth the pain and the misery that comes from it. That's why really when you think about it, we need to practice daily a presentation of ourselves to God. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your what? Bodies. Interesting, bodies. Our physical bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your, this is your true and proper worship. God, I don't want to ever do anything with this body, morally speaking, that's displeasing to you. I present my whole body, my whole being to you. Then he says, look, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Eugene Peterson in the message says, don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. I don't want to be squeezed in the mold of the world, do you? Don't be squeezed. Don't live like the world lives. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. We've come full circle, haven't we? Remember the mind? Guard your mind. Be transformed in your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Not feelings, will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God loves you. I know he does. I know he loves you. And he loves me. And sometimes, you know, given the culture we live in, given the temptations we face, sometimes God's truth seems hard. But I want to tell you what, his truth is meant to protect you. It's meant to keep you. It's meant to bless you and your family. It's meant to create a good society. And though you may feel like you're in the minority and though you may feel like everybody else around you is doing it, do you want to go off the cliff too? Do you want to suffer the consequences too? Let's live for the Lord. Let's experience the best that God has for us by honoring the way he's created us and relating to each other the way he intended for us.